Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Well, good morning. I wanted to be the first to wish them a happy new year, Emerson. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> An early Happy New Year to you as well, yes. And uh, I wanted to say a quick thank you. We're going to be in that passage this morning, Luke chapter 2. Yeah, thank you, Jack, for getting us started in that. And I just wanted to say thank you for uh, the Christmas gift that you contributed to and uh, gave us last week. Uh, and I know I speak on behalf of Paul. Paul's using a little bit of vacation time with, with Cheryl. Um, we, we are very grateful to, uh, to you guys for thinking of us that way. Don't, don't ever expect it. And so thank you so much. Um, we are going to continue in Luke this morning. We're not going to just stop with the shepherds. We're going to see what happened next. So uh, would you pray with me, please? And let's, uh, let's, let's look and see. Lord, thank you so much for, um, for Christmas and the, the joy of celebrating the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, we thank you for this year that uh, we are ending. Lord, here it is, the last day of 2023. And every day in it was a gift, the, the, the good ones and the bad ones, the hard ones and the easy ones, the ones where we worked so hard we weren't sure if we were going to make it to the end of the day, and the ones where we rested. Every one of them was a, a, a gift from you, and we thank you for your grace and your provision all through it, Lord. And uh, as we look now into your word, we pray that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit. Uh, it, help me to get out of the way, Lord. Help us to hear what you want to say to us through these ancient, holy, eternal, living words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Back in September, uh, police in a town in uh, eastern Massachusetts got a call. And the call said that a car was stuck in a body of water. And when they investigated, sure enough, that's what they found. Uh, the driver was safe. She'd been able to get out of the car fine. But her car was submerged about halfway up in a swamp. She had, she had managed to drive into a swamp, and so water was up to the, to the doors, like that, that height of the car. When they asked her what happened, you know, how did you end up with your car in this swamp, she, she explained that she worked for DoorDash, and she was making a delivery, a Dunkin' Donuts delivery, they're big out there, and uh, she was going to an address she'd never been to, been to before, it was an unfamiliar address for her, so she got out her phone, typed in the address, and let the phone tell her how to get there. Uh, unfortunately, something went wrong. It's not clear if it was her or if it was the GPS, but somehow this poor woman followed the directions down a dirt road straight into a swamp. Just splash right, in, right into the swamp. Um, in the end, it was, it was kind of sad for her. Actually, they, they ticketed her for negligent driving. The car was declared a loss. The only bright spot was that she did manage to save the donuts. She... Uh, <laughs> She remembered as she was climbing out the window, I guess, she grabbed the customer's order and at least she was able to make the delivery. Stories like that are a good reminder. They're a good reminder of how important it is to follow good directions. We have to have good directions. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, today we're going to dive in to the Gospel of Luke. And you say, well, haven't we already been studying in Luke? Yes, we have. All through the Christmas season, all through December, we were looking at passages in Luke. Uh, but I want to keep going this year. A lot of years, you know, you look at Luke, you talk about the shepherds, maybe you even, you know, you might even go so far as the Magi, something like that. But, but I want to actually keep going with Luke this year. And I'm not sure how far we'll get. I haven't decided completely. But uh, for at least the first half of the year here, the first part of the year, I want to just see what happened next in the Gospel of Luke. 
And so as we begin what I hope is a study in the Gospel of Luke, a good place to start is to ask what the purpose of the book is. What is the purpose of Luke? Whenever we look at a new book in the Bible, I think that's an important thing to ask because it guides how you, you, inf- you uh, interpret it. And so we find ourselves asking that question about Luke. What's the, what's the purpose of Luke? Uh, fortunately, Luke tells us. Luke is one of those books where the author comes right out and tells us the purpose statement of the book. And where we find it is actually at the beginning. I have to go back to chapter 1. And I want to read the first four verses, which we kind of ignored and didn't pay any attention to back in, in uh, the earlier part of the month. But let's read that opening paragraph. Uh, Paul, uh, Luke, writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word of the word have delivered them to us it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you most excellent theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught so that's the introduction to luke and uh, luke tells us here that he was he's writing the book for a man named theophilus And I believe Theophilus was a real person. Some people make the case that it's a pseudonym or almost like a way to talk about his whole audience. Theophilus, the name means lover of God. And so there are some scholars who argue that Theophilus is just a a literary device to talk to, you know, just anybody who loves God. But I think a pretty good case can be made that Theophilus was a real person and he had commissioned the book. And so he had, uh, you can almost think of him like an art patron. sponsoring Luke's work is, is almost how you think about it. And some scholars even suggest that he was a Roman official who, who wanted to know what had happened with this Jesus person. More importantly, though, I think it's pretty clear Theophilus was a follower of Jesus, just like Luke is. And so Luke, whatever the connection was, and we don't know anything more than what I just told you, but whatever the connection was, Luke writes to this man to explain to him the details of the life of Jesus. And Luke had access. If you look at the book of Acts, Luke keeps popping up as a contemporary and a a ministry partner, actually, with the Apostle Paul. And so Luke had access. He wasn't one of the original 12, but he had all kinds of access to that first generation of Christian leaders. And so Luke is very well positioned to write this uh, summary of the life of Jesus for this man, Theophilus. And his, his explicit purpose in verse 4 is so that you may have certainty. So here's, what he's, here's his goal. He's not just giving Theophilus facts. I write this so that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. And so if you think, when we think in terms of the purpose of the book of Luke, the purpose of Luke is to build up our faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what I, I want to talk about today. And I, I see this as kind of the, the, the overarching theme of Luke in general. Its purpose is to build up our faith, strengthen our faith in Jesus, understand better who he is, what he's like, what he came to do. And, and that's what, what Luke is about. And I want to show how that works in this passage. So this morning, as I say, we, I want to look at what came next for baby Jesus A lot of times we stop with the shepherds, we leave them there in the manger, and we go study something else. Uh, This year, I want to keep reading and see what happened in that formal presentation in the temple, and that's what today's text is going to cover. We're going to cover a little bit longer section than what we had read. I I want to cover actually through verse 40 this morning. And as we go through these verses, I want to point out to you some principles. And so I want to look at it by way of an outline. I want to talk about six principles that do exactly this, six principles that build up our faith in Jesus. And so if we 
if we want to avoid getting stuck in a spiritual swamp uh, in, in the days ahead, in this year ahead, I always kind of find myself thinking that way when I come to an end of the year and looking ahead to a new one. What am I going to do to follow Jesus better in this year? Well, these six things, if we keep them in mind, will help us follow Jesus better in the year ahead. So that's our outline this morning, six principles that we can trust and live out in our own lives. They all come from this text. So number one, the first principle uh, is that Jesus cares for the poor. And this is really a really important thing that Luke's going to want us to see in this letter. He emphasizes it more than the other gospel writers. And it's a core thing in terms of how we think about his relationship with us and how we, we even think about how we treat other people. And so principle number one is that Jesus cares for the poor and the downtrodden. How do we know? We know it because of the family into which he chose to be born. So Jesus born in Bethlehem, manger, the whole night, all of that. Eight days later... Uh, Jesus, uh, Mary, and Joseph fulfill their first spiritual duty. So they have, as Jewish parents, they have a a, a series of spiritual duties to their son. Uh, They fulfill the first one. Verse 21 tells us about it. Verse 21 says that it's a very kind of a simple, quick little thing. Uh, At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And so they they go and they, they, they take care of this. Um, There was never any question about the name, right? The angel had told Mary, the angel had told Joseph. uh, They weren't to to name the baby Jesus. They weren't going to name him anything else. Uh, There also was no question about the circumcision. Uh, Circumcision is the sign of the covenant for Jews, going all the way back to Abraham. And Joseph, we've already learned, was a righteous man, a godly man. And so, of course, he was going to go and make sure that his son was circumcised on the eighth day like the law required. So that's duty, you know, spiritual duty number one. But that's, that's not the star of today's story. Uh, that was only their first duty. Uh, they have another one that comes 40 days after Jesus is born. So according to Exodus chapter 13, every firstborn son had to be consecrated. He had to be dedicated in a special way to the Lord. And this was done after the mom had gone through a 40-day purification period. And this was partly a ritual thing. It was also partly a break for mom. She didn't have to deal with anybody else. She had 40 days to just focus on healing from from giving birth and and taking care of her new baby. And so after that 40 days of purification is over, there's a ceremony that they have to go perform. This ceremony, the consecration, requires a trip to Jerusalem. And so the the naming, the circumcision, that was almost certainly done in Bethlehem because you could do that at any, you know, you could do that at any any synagogue and every every Jewish village, even the smallest ones had some sort of a synagogue at this time in history. So that was done in Bethlehem. But this, the consecration, requires a trip to Jerusalem. Fortunately, they're in Bethlehem. So it's only, Bethlehem is less than 10 miles away from Jerusalem. And so they make that trip. And they get to the temple, they're ready to make their offering that's part of this consecration. This is where we see their poverty. This is where we see that Joseph and Mary, they're not, not dirt poor, but, but they, they are not people of means. And, and where we see this confirmation, we might have guessed it from the whole birth in the, birth in the manger thing, uh, but, but where it's confirmed is in the offering, the offering that they bring. According to Leviticus chapter 12, uh, the, the offering that a, a, a mother was to bring was that she's supposed to bring a lamb. She's supposed to bring a year-old lamb and a dove or a pigeon, so a bird and a lamb. Uh, however, Leviticus sees that this might be too much for some families, and so Leviticus 12.8 says if she cannot afford a lamb, she's to bring two doves 
and two young pigeons, or two young pigeons, two doves or two pigeons. That's what Mary and Joseph could manage, right? Luke tells us very, you say, why, why so much detail on what kind of a sacrifice they brought? It's to help us see where they stand. That's what they could afford. Mary, the mother of Jesus, brings a poor person's offering rather than the offering of a wealthier person. What does that tell us about Jesus? Because we're not so much interested in Mary as we are as in what it tells us about Jesus. What does it tell us about Jesus? It tells us he understands and cares about the poor. Where do I get that? Because this is the family into which he chose to be born. None of us chose our family, right? We don't get to pick our families. Jesus, the only person to ever live who got to choose the family into which he was born. And he chose to be born into, to, to this couple, to Mary and Joseph. This, was, this is God's plan. This is what he's doing. And so that really helps us understand it. When Jesus, when you see this theme emerging in Luke, when, when Jesus says, uh, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God, he knows what he's talking about. Right? He's not some elitist standing from the outside and kind of condescendingly talking to the poor. He's talking like a poor person, as a poor person. He knows he, that is him. That's him. He knows from firsthand experience. And, and it is fair to say that's most human beings' firsthand experience. The vast majority of human beings down through the ages and even still today live in poverty. Right? In what we would call poverty. And, and that's what Jesus did. That's what he did. That's what he chose. He chose to immerse himself in our need. And so he cares for the, for the materially poor, the physically poor. But we also see his heart here for the poor in spirit. It, and so it's not merely material impoverishment. He cares for all those who are poor on the inside. And so we really get a snapshot here of the, the core of the heart of the gospel. Right? Jesus cares for those who are poor on the inside, the hurting, the depressed, those who are struggling to hold on to their faith, the grieving, those who are burdened with, with shame and sin. When Jesus plunged himself into our poverty, he plunged himself into every form of our poverty. He cares deeply for, for the poor. He cares deeply for us, is really what we're, what we're saying with this first principle. So Jesus cares for the poor. The second principle that we can trust is that Jesus also values our piety. Jesus values piety. Again, we see this in the parents he chose. These first two go together. I suppose if I wanted a five-point outline, I could have probably just put them together. But he, he cares deeply for our, our righteousness, for our piety. Where do we see this? We see this in the fact that God made sure Jesus was in a pious family. That was more important than him being born into a wealthy one. Uh, Luke goes out of his way to show us this, to show us the righteousness, the piety uh, of, of Mary and Joseph alike. Uh, I could take you back actually and show you examples of it in chapter one, but let's just stick with this text. The main way we see it in this text is in their um, rigid almost, but I don't mean that in a bad way, but their rigid commitment to fulfilling the requirements of the law. Uh, on day eight, they bring Jesus to be, to be circumcised and named just like the law required. Uh, on day 40, right? So Mary observes the 40 days of purification. She, they, they keep her apart like, like the law required. When the 40 days are over, they bring their offerings to the temple and the baby to the temple, just like the law required. And the idea is, what we're meant to see here is, this is a, a righteous, pious family. 
And this is so important. You say, ah, you're making too much of this. No, this is so important. Luke tells us again at the end of this narrative, verse 39, uh, when everything's all done, he's told us everything he wants to tell us about this. Verse 39, he says, when Joseph and Mary had performed everything according to the law, of the Lord, they return to Galilee. So he keeps, it's, it's, again, it's like bold-faced or underlining. They are righteous, pious couple. You know, sometimes we get the impression, you know, even from guys like me, you know, we talk about, this is what the Pharisees said, and this is what Jews did, and they washed their hands before everything. And we, we hear these things about the Gospels, and we get the impression that that's how everybody lived. Right? And so all the Jews in the first century were going around washing their hands all the time and strictly obeying the law and all of this. But that simply isn't true. There were plenty of unrighteous Jews who stretched the law or just did the bare minimum to kind of, you know, like tick off the box, or, or many of them just flat out disregarded the law. Think of the prostitutes we meet and the sinners and the tax collectors and all the rest that we meet as the Gospels unfold. And so do not assume that... that Everybody was just living that way, for, was living the right way that God wanted them to live. No, uh, there were many unpious people. And that's why the example of, of Mary and Joseph really stands out. Luke wants us to see that they, require, they, they followed the requirements of the law. They were righteous, pious people. There's an important application here, I think, for, uh, for parents. Let's, let's talk for, for, for I mean, the, the general application is for all of us. Righteousness matters. Piety matters. Do not ever think that our behavior doesn't matter to God. It does. We see that here. But I was thinking about, uh, about this principle more specifically, like for Mary and Joseph as parents, and for even Jesus as, as an infant at this point, six weeks old in, in, in today's story. You know, the world tells us, the culture tells us that the most important thing we can do for our children is provide for them financially. Almost every message we hear tells us that that's the most important thing. Make sure they have enough stuff, right? Make sure they have the right stuff, the right clothes, they go to the right schools, they have the right electronic devices, go on the right vacations, have the right experiences, all that kind of stuff. That is the message we get constantly. That's what a good parent does. They make sure their kid's got enough money. God does not agree. That is not God's value system. How do I know? Because God did not put Jesus in a wealthy family. God put Jesus in a pious family, a righteous family. As far as God is concerned, piety outranks prosperity every single time. And so remember that. You know, I, I didn't figure I'd have so many family members visiting with, with little kids that I wasn't sure how many actual parents I'd get to talk to today. But, but remember that if you're entrusted with the care of little ones. When God was searching for the right family to raise his son, he did not pick one with all the stuff. He picked one that cared about character, that cared about righteousness and piety. That's principle number two. Uh, number three, third principle we can trust from this text uh, is that Jesus deserves our confidence. Jesus deserves our confidence. We've talked about this before in recent weeks, and here's another way to look at it, and I think it's an important one. He deserves our confidence. He is worthy of our trust. Where do we see that in this text? We see it with the two, really the stars of today's story, these two witnesses, Simeon and Anna. Simeon and Anna. Luke goes out of his way to show us that these are spiritually credible people. And so when each of them, in their own way, testifies to the identity of Jesus, each one's going to tell the people around them, and therefore us as readers, that, that this baby is the Messiah, these aren't two lunatics, right? These aren't two, two older people who've lost it a little bit. These are two spiritually 
credible, trustworthy witnesses. And therefore, because the witnesses are credible, the baby is credible. And so the point here, uh, one of the points with Simeon and Anna, is for you and I to understand that Jesus deserves our trust. He deserves our confidence. Let me show you how that works with each of them. Start with Simeon. Simeon is trustworthy. Luke presents him to us as a trustworthy witness because he is three things. He is old, he is devout, and he's a prophet. You can trust this guy in what he says because he's old, he's devout, and he's a prophet. Now, we're not actually told explicitly that he's old, but he almost certainly was old. Uh, And I think where you see that in the text is verse 29, where it points to, where he basically says, now I can die, right? Most, you know, your your typical 22-year-old isn't going around thinking about, okay, now I'm ready to die. This this is an older man. It's just he's clearly presented to, to us in that way. So he, and, and which means he has the authority of age. Our culture, eh, we don't always work that way so much anymore. But, but in an ancient culture like this, when someone's achieved even 50 years or 60 years for, for sure, this is, this is someone who's, who's filled with wisdom and is, and is esteemed for his or her wisdom. And so, so Simeon's trustworthy that way. He's also devout. He's righteous and devout. We're told that about him in verse 25. So devout, in fact, that God had given him a special gift. God had given him a revelation. Right? God had told him in person that he would not die until he had seen the Messiah with his own eyes. Right? So, so he's a righteous, devout man. And he's also flowing out of that, um, out of that revelation. And then also with what he says, uh, we, we see that Simeon is a prophet. Right? So he sees, uh, and, and Luke doesn't call him a prophet. Luke never uses the word prophet, but he prophesies. Right? When Simeon takes the baby into his arms, he utters a prophecy. We'll look at it a little closer in a few minutes, but verses 34 and 35 are a prophecy that Simeon gives. And so Simeon, when he endorses this baby, uh, he is a trustworthy witness because he's devout, he's old, and he's a prophet. We meet the other person, Anna, in verse 36, and she has the same credentials. It's the same set of credentials. Let me read the the verses. If if you have your Bible or whatever there, look at verse 36. He says, And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to him of, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So Anna was also a prophet. Like I said, all, same three things. She's a prophet. We don't hear her prophesy, or we don't hear her prophecy the way we do with uh, Simeon, but Luke tells us specifically she's a prophetess. She's also old. Uh, Most English translations, including the one I just read, will say that she's 84 years old, Uh, although you might see a note in your Bible that says she could have been 105. Uh, The Greek is, it's just ambiguous in the Greek with the way they do the numbers, whether the idea is she was in the temple until she was 84 or she was in the temple for 84 more years. And so it just depends. She's either 84 or she's about 105 uh, as an estimate. Either way, she's old, right? She definitely ticks the box in terms of someone who has earned the right to be listened to uh, by, by virtue of her age. And then she's also devout. She is presented to us as a devout woman who is utterly committed to the Lord. And we see this in this statement that she, she never left the, t- the temple, right? She spent her night and days, her nights and days were spent fasting and praying. 
And if you wonder, how does that work? How does she never leave the temple? Uh, the, the, second, uh, the second temple, the first cent- the temple that Jesus, in, in Jesus' day, uh, was actually very large. It was a huge facility, and it had all of these like supplementary rooms. And so there were actually apartments, not a lot of apartments, but there were apartments where people who wanted to give themselves over to this kind of service could live. So we're not talking luxury apartment here, but, but there was a place where she lived. And so that's how she actually, I don't think it's a stretch or a, an exaggeration. She lived in the temple is the idea here. And so she has given her life over in service to, to the Lord. And so we have these two witnesses and the point of, of each of them is that you can trust them. You can trust them when they say, this is him. This is the one we've been waiting for. This is the one. Uh, he, he deserves our, everything he's going to ask for, right? I mean, it's only chapter two. Luke's setting us up some in terms of, how, terms of how he tells the story. But we can trust this Jesus. Just look at the people who testify to him. I'm probably not the first person to ask you this question at this point, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, did you have a good year? Did you have a good year? Was 2023 good for you? Or are you one of those people who can't wait for it to be over? Right? Are you kind of, I can't wait to put it in the rearview mirror tonight and try a new one, start a new one tomorrow. We'll see how it goes. The reason I ask is that depending on your answer, you might be wondering right now if you can trust Jesus in the year ahead. Right? If you're looking back at 23 and you're like, ugh, where was God in 23? There may be some who feel that today. If if 23 was a hard year, you may be kind of cringing at what 24 might bring. And I think that's where this third principle is is immediately helpful. It's, It's helpful because the answer to that wondering is yes. Yes, he is. Yes, he is trustworthy. Yes, we can trust him. His faithfulness doesn't depend on our circumstances. It depends on his character. And his character is trustworthy. And so Jesus deserves our confidence. It's another principle in this text, and it's one we'll see developed all throughout the book. Principle number four in this uh, this section is that, and again, it's one we actually talked about with some of the earlier prophecies already, but it's simply that Jesus offers salvation, real salvation, genuine, lasting, transformative salvation. And and we see this in the words of Simeon. Uh, Simeon... uh, Simeon talks, and when he, when he opens his mouth, uh, he talks about how Jesus came to bring salvation for all who trust him. Uh, let me reread, uh, reread here um, from verse 28. Uh, Simeon took him up in his arms, baby Jesus, and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. My eyes have seen your salvation. His famous statement that Simeon makes here. My eyes have seen your salvation. That's his prayer. And what's he talking about? I love, Simeon's one of my favorite minor characters in the Bible because it's just so, I think it's so evocative. Where has he seen his salvation? He's right here, right? I, my, he, again, it's not metaphorical. My eyes have seen your salvation. He's here in my arms. And, and notice how the theological context he says in it, it's salvation for all people, right? It's not just a few. And so he talks about how uh, this baby has come to bring light to Jew and Gentile alike. So this isn't just a personal thing for, for Simeon, although he takes it very personal, but he understands that this baby is the savior of the world, 
right? Because biblically speaking, when you, when, you, when you divide everything up into Jew and Gentile, you're talking about everybody. And so what we have actually in Simeon's words is actually the strongest statement yet. We're only in chapter two, but it's the strongest statement yet in Luke that Jesus has come for everybody. And so there's this reminder here in the consecration in the temple. This is what Jesus has come to bring. He's come to bring salvation for all who will come to him by faith. Salvation from sin, salvation from addiction, salvation from shame, salvation from demonic influence, salvation from anxiety, depression, self-loathing, all these things that we get trapped in and are trapped in sometimes, all that sinful stuff that enslaves people, Jesus came to set us free from it. He came to bring salvation. So that's principle number four. Uh, Number five, the fifth principle uh, that we can trust if we start a new year together is that Jesus also clarifies our choices. He clarifies our choices. And we see this specifically in what Simeon says now to Mary, because he, he, he does these, these words of praise, which are pretty prophetic too. But then I, there is what I called a prophecy earlier in verses 34 and 35. And what we see in his words to Mary is that contrary to pop theology, Jesus did not come just to make us feel good about ourselves. He came to force a choice. Jesus came to force a choice. He's going to say so later in the gospel, but Simeon says so already here in chapter 2. Picking up from verse 33, we haven't read this part yet. Verse 33 says, And his father and his mother, the his is Jesus, of course. Notice how Luke almost always puts Jesus at the center of the narrative. Everything spins around him. I love the way he does that. And, And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So there's actually two messages here. There's a specific message for Mary and a general message for everybody. Uh, The specific message for Mary is that along with the joy... And along with the blessing that this new baby is bringing into her life, he's also going to bring pain and heartache, right? That's the the soul will, that's the the part about a sword will pierce your soul. He's not saying Jesus is going to attack her. He's not saying even that Jesus is going to sin against her. What What he's saying is that the nature of his mission, the nature of his mission is such that someday he's going to break her, her mother's heart, right? Her mother's heart is going to be broken by this, by this child. And you and I know exactly what he's talking about. Somebody reading Luke for the first time may not know, uh, but you and I know how the life of Jesus ended. We know how he gave his life on the cross for us, and so we know what Simeon is prophesying. He's prophesying the crucifixion here, which again is amazing. One of the, uh, one, another thing we'll say about Luke sometimes is that Luke is, um, Luke is arranged uh, geographically, especially when we get in like the middle part of the book, it becomes clear that a lot of Luke is a journey. It's a journey to the cross. The journey to the cross has just begun. It's actually begun back here in chapter two, where, where he talks this, when he gives, where the Lord gives this prophecy through Simeon to Mary. We are already headed in that direction. And so there's that specific message for Mary, but then there's also a general message here for, for really for all of humankind that Simeon utters. And what he says is it's this part about how this child will cause the rising of some and the falling of others. And he'll reveal the hearts. And this is the choice part. Uh, the, 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 the per, each person's heart will be revealed by what they do with this child 
whether they rise with him or fall on him. And so that's, that's the idea here. This is where Jesus clarifies our choices. What's his point? His point is there's no such thing as a lukewarm response to Jesus. That's, that's not on the table. There's, that's not an option with Jesus, right? We can do it with, with silly things. You can, you know, the, the hottest new show that's out and somebody says you should watch it and you go, eh, I don't care. We can't do, eh, I don't care with Jesus. That one's not on the table. That, and that, that, this is what Simeon is saying here in this prophecy. We will either rise with him or we will fall because of him. He's either, to, to bring in language from, from later in the gospel, he's either the rock on which we build our lives, or he's the rock that will crush us someday in judgment. Either way, he's the rock. He's the same. But how he comes to us, whether in salvation or in judgment, how he comes to us is going to be up to us. It's going to, be, it's going to come down to that choice of what we do with him. Do we, are we with him or are we against him? Are, they, are you either for me or you're against me, Jesus says. And so there's this sense, and again, it's, Jesus is still a baby. Uh, and and this, it, it comes out in this prophecy here that he has come to force a choice. He's come to clarify our choice. Uh, before we move on to number six, I'll ask the obvious question, which is what are you doing with Jesus? What am I doing with Jesus? What are we doing with Jesus? It's the most important question any human being will ever be asked. Are we rising with him or are we falling because of him? That's a question this gospel will push us on. Finally, uh, the sixth principle that we can trust in the new year uh, is that Jesus is worth the wait. He's worth the wait. Uh, that was true for Simeon, it's true for Anna, and it's still true today. It's true for us too. Uh, one of the most striking details, uh, really uh, I'll call it a human detail, one of the most striking human details in this passage is that both Anna and Simeon had been waiting a long time for what we're reading about today. Both of them had been waiting a long time for this moment to arise. Uh, verse 25, let's talk about Simeon first. Uh, verse 25 tells us that Simeon had been waiting, right? He'd been waiting, it says, for the consolation of Israel. And, uh, and the, the Holy Spirit had told him his waiting was very specific, right? His wasn't more general like Anna's in, uh, is. Uh, his is, is very specific. The Holy Spirit had told him that he would live to see the Messiah with his own eyes. Can you imagine what that would have been like for this man personally, to, to live with that information? And we don't know how long, if it had been just a couple of years before, or if it had been 20 years before, we don't know how long he lived with this knowledge, but can you see him just checking, right? Every time he goes into the temple, you know, he's, he's checking, he's checking the faces, who's talking today, who's new, who looks kind of, oh, that, oh, that guy's kind of tall, he looks kind of messiah maybe it's him, you know, it just, and, and, and this, is, he would be checking the men, right? You're, who, which one's the messiah? I, the Lord said I would see the messiah before I die, and you get a little older, and the bones start to creak, and it's like, Lord, you're going to run out of time here, and, and, and you can just see, you can feel his waiting, watching, listening, trying to figure out which one is it. And then one day, one day, the Holy Spirit whispers, Simeon, it's time. It's time. It's the day. He's here. Quick, get to the temple. And so he gets to the temple, and he starts looking at all the men. And the Spirit says, no, it's not a man. It's a baby. 
It's one of the babies. It, 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 there would have been more than one baby consecrated in these, cemetery, in these uh, uh, ceremonies. And, and, so, uh, and so he's looking. He's like, oh, the baby. Which baby? That baby. The, the one with the poor woman? Yeah, the one with the poor woman. It's that baby. That's the one I promised you. And so he goes over and he, he takes him in his arms. And uh, I, I don't know why Mary would let him take him, but she did. And so he takes, him, he takes the baby in his arms. And, and the joy... It just bubbles with joy. He can't contain his praise. I'm done, Lord. You can sign me out now. My purpose is fulfilled. My life is complete. My eyes have seen your salvation, he says. There's not a hint of regret, not a hint of disappointment. It's not like, oh, it's just a baby. There's none of that. What's his point? The, The point is he's worth it. Jesus was worth the wait as far as Simeon is concerned. Same thing with Anna. She'd been living in that temple for at least 60 years, maybe 85, depending on how you do the math. But let's just call, let's take the short number. For 60 years, she's been living in the temple. And we don't know if she had a promise that was as specific as the one Simeon had. The text seems to want to just group her with all those who were waiting. If you see that there in in, uh, verse 38, she, she goes and talks to all those who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So she may not have had a specific prophecy the way Simeon did, but her response is the same. Somehow she knows, and that's why I think Luke tells us she was a prophetess. She knows. She knows in her spirit that the baby Simeon is holding is the baby they've been waiting, is the, is the Messiah they've been waiting for, and she responds the same way. She's so happy, in fact, you can't stop her. You can't contain her. She goes around, it says, and she tells everyone who'd been waiting for the redemption of, of Israel that, that he's arrived, that he's here. He's worth the wait. Jesus is worth the wait. I don't know what you're waiting for, Right, so different ones, uh, but I would guess all of us are waiting on something. We're waiting on the Lord to do something or to answer some prayer or whatever it might be. And, and I take great hope myself from Simeon and Anna when I think about this idea of waiting because what we see is that Jesus is worth the wait. His answer, his solution, his provision is worth the wait. I can't make any guarantees in terms of the timing. I don't know. Anna waited 60 years. But... I can assure you from the scriptures that he's worth it. Jesus is worth the wait. So keep trusting him. Whatever it is, keep waiting on the Lord. That's principle number six. I should probably be embarrassed to admit this, but sometimes I get in my car and I use maps on my phone even when I know the way. Even when I know where I'm going, I could drive there with no directions at all. I'll still call up the map, put in the address, hit directions, and off I'll go. I'm not sure why I do it. Like I said, it's a little embarrassing because I have a pretty good sense of direction even. But but I'll still pull up a map. And I was thinking, why do I do that? I think I do it because it's comforting. It's kind of comforting to have that confirmation. Even though I think I'm heading in the right direction, it's nice to have the confirmation that I am. That's how I think about these principles this morning, right? You think about these six principles we just talked about. Listen, I know this is basic stuff, right? We, this, this isn't particle physics. This is Jesus 101, these things we've just talked about today. And yet they're so good for us to remember. They're so good for us to remember. It's comforting to know that, that this is who Jesus is. And if we put these principles into practice and we let them strengthen our faith, if we do that in the year ahead, we're, we're, tomorrow we start a new one, So as we start a new one, if we follow these principles, we will be headed in the right direction.